This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today in episode 10, we explore some work being done in Saskatchewan on intercropping. Lana Shaw and Dr. Michelle Hubbard join us to share about what they're seeing, particularly when it comes to chickpea-flax combinations, and the effect that intercropping system is having on Askakaida. Now, if you're new to pulse crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. This show follows some pulse crop farmers through the growing season and dives into the research that's helping them through some of the challenges they face. We'll also talk to a number of other industry stakeholders along the way. We begin today's episode with Lana Shaw, who's the research manager at the Southeast Research Farm in Redverse, Saskatchewan. This farm is a nonprofit that is directed by a producer board. It's not beholden to any corporations, governments, or other entities. So it's completely focused on farmer-driven research. Lana is known for her work with intercropping, which she has tested over 20 different combinations in small plot trials, all of which have included pulses. Some of those she's gone much further into than just the small plot trials, especially this combination of chickpeas and flax. So I started working on chickpea flax in 2012, back when I was quite new at the research farm, and it looked promising. It, the first year I tried it, some of those treatments looked really good. So we continued on from there. Adding a small amount of flax to chickpeas, we've found in small plot trials and farmer fields and in producer surveys that it reduces the leaf disease, the, the Ascochyta disease in the chickpeas, which is a devastating disease of chickpeas. The Ascochyta disease has, is developing resistance to the fungicides. That's currently the main way that people control it. Yes, we use rotations. Yes, we use seed treatments. Yes, we can use fungicides. This is an extra additional means of reducing disease. And we've got six site years from all different locations of showing reductions in in the amount of, of disease. Some years we didn't have a lot of disease pressure, but some years we've had moderate to high pressure for the disease and it's reducing the impact of, of that disease. So that's really important. It also makes the chickpeas mature more reliably. Chickpeas are very indeterminate. So if you get rain in the fall, they might start flowering again. They'll stay green, things don't mature, and then you've got a mess. And the flax helps to an extent. If you get seven inches of rain at harvest time, there's only so much that flax can do. But it does help to make the crop mature more reliably, and it increases the quality of the seed because it's having that imp impact on making the, the plants mature and become more determinate. You get less green seed in those chickpeas, which is important. If you have to color sort your chickpeas to get 10% green seed out or 7% green seed out, that's a loss of yield. And it's also a cost that you're incurring on all the rest of that yield to put it through a color sorter. There's multiple benefits that we're getting from this. There are times when the total yield might be less. Most of the time, the total yield of flax and chickpeas to combined is similar to or a little better than normal. But it's so it's not really so much yield that we're chasing on this. It's dependable quality and disease reductions. So that value, when you add that on, it, that helps. And it might mean that you spray once for fungicide instead of two or three, four times and have better quality crop in the end. That pencils out really nicely. 
So I've been working on that. This is the first year I haven't had a fairly big chickpea flax trial in a long time. We ended up putting that one on the shelf for the year because of the pandemic, because it's so intensive for the data collection and travel for people going back and forth to help with, with the project. You're going to hear more about the research being done on this chickpea flax combination later as we bring on Dr. Michelle Hubbard. But first, I wanted to know from Lena about some of the practical aspects of how this works with planting, growing, and harvesting two different crops at the same time on the same field. We'll start with the seeding because that makes sense. We're trying to see this in one pass to reduce soil disturbance. So we're putting the chickpeas generally down the fertilizer shanks of a double shoot drill. Instead of putting fertilizer down, we're putting chickpeas down and then we're putting flax down the seed shank. That accomplishes a little bit of difference in seeding depth, which is good. Some people are seeding both together in the same row, so but generally we're metering them separately. So you're not just mixing the seed together usually and seeding a mixture. Usually you have a, a setup to be able to meter each seed separately at a specific rate. And there are limited number, but some herbicides that you can use on the mixture. Harvest is one of the main questions people ask because any farmer or probably research people will know the settings for the combine for flax is entirely different from the settings for the combine for chickpeas. So one of our very smart farmers, Colin Rosengren up here, figured out that if you just set it for the chickpeas and then turn the fans down just enough that you're not blowing the the flax out the back of the combine, that the chickpeas thresh the flax bowls. It's like having a whole bunch of bar, ball bearings going through the combine and it crushes up those flax bowls and they thresh. So it actually takes less threshing power to thresh the mixture than it will flax on its own. And there's a lot of farmers I talk to that say, I'll never grow flax, I'll never grow flax because the residue is hard to deal with. It's hard to thresh. It, it's just not really much fun at harvest time or after harvest. And But when you're seeding 10 to 20 pounds an acre of flax in a mixture with a chickpea, that's entirely different. It's not like we're seeding a full crop of flax and a full crop of chickpeas. We're basically having close to a regular rate of chickpea seeded with some flax added, almost as a nurse crop. So I, I sort of think of it as a buddy crop. <laughs> and it works really nicely in combination. There are times where sometimes the flax is not maturing quite how you'd like it. We have often had recourse to putting a desiccant on at harvest time because the flax stems might be a bit green or there's some spots that aren't quite maturing all nice and evenly. So a lot of the time we'll do that. And then it, it threshes just fine. There's I rely on my farmer friends on Twitter to help people figure out how to set the combine because each combine has is different depending on all the insides of it. And I am no expert on the equipment side of things. So, so I try to outsource instructions from, from people that are, have been happy to share. Lana did say there can be some challenges with intercropping when it comes to things like crop insurance and when certain inputs may not be labeled for both crops. One of the biggest questions I had, though, was once you have all of these two commodities mixed together after harvest, how do you unmix them? Okay, separating, I think it will be fairly obvious that the seed size is very different. 
between a chickpea and a flax. And we have these things called dockage cleaners or grain cleaners that are meant to clean weed seeds out of grain crops. And they're pretty high throughput. They don't have a huge amount of flexibility. They're not purpose built for cleaning intercrops, but they do work relatively well for that purpose. So when you have really big seed size differences, there's things they call quick cleans or units like that that are readily available and relatively inexpensive that for 25 cents a bushel can separate those crops or maybe less. So it's not like you have to take it to a seed cleaning plant that's going to charge a dollar a bushel and it's not as expensive a seed cleaning operation as it would be if you were trying to clean seed for planting. Because you're not trying to achieve that level of clean, you just need something, a saleable product of each one. So oftentimes you're, you're separating out a fraction that's weed seeds and then the flax comes out separate and the chickpeas come out separate and you can have three legs coming out of a, a seed cleaner that's all going in different directions. And then all that weed seed, you can you know use it for animal feed or compost it or do whatever you please with it, but it's not out in the field anymore. And that's probably a good thing. And I try to tell people to have their separation planned before you plant the crop. So figure out before you even plant it, what is going, what are you going to do for separation so that you don't arrive in the fall and, and realize, well, nobody wants to help me deal with this. <laughs> Cause I hear that sometimes people will have this mixed grain sitting there and, and they don't seem to be able to, they can't convince their local seed cleaner to do it for a clean it for a, a reasonable rate. And when, you know, if you can go to an auction and buy one of these dockage cleaners and then get the appropriate screens and try it out, then you've got something workable that, that is ready to go when your crop comes off. Storage is another issue that comes up because people wonder if you can actually store the mixed grain. And there's never been any studies on that. I'd like to see some studies on that. Farmers are actually storing the grain in mixtures. They just have to make sure that each crop is safe storage in its own right so use pans to separate them and they go okay is the flax at a safe storage moisture yes or no is the chickpeas at a safe storage moisture yes or no if they both are farmers are storing them safely just fine there's no guarantees on that but it's just something that you you watch and maybe blow some air through and keep an eye on it but there i've been haven't been hearing of you know bad un, unexpected wrecks from from storing these mixed grains so why go through all this trouble? What's the point of this intercropping thing at all? Well, Lana says there are a few advantages, one of which is they're finding data that supports intercropping is helping with Ascochyta control. Depending on the year and the site, we're getting substantial and statistically significant reductions in disease. And what the surveys have found was, was that the farmers were getting less disease with one application on intercrops than the farmers that were spraying twice in their monocrops. Michelle Hubbard is our pulse pathologist at Swift Current with Ag Canada. And so she's been helping to, to provide that pathology specialization level of assistance on this. So, and also at Carrington that they looked at the 
rates of fungicide use in intercrops and monocrops. And the intercrops was as effective as two applications of fungicide. And if you did intercrop with fungicide, that was even more effective than monocrops with fungicide alone. That all of a sudden puts some dollar value on what the value of that intercrop is. And a, you know, 10 or 15 pounds an acre of flax seed is relatively really low cost for something that you're putting in the ground. So it takes some extra level of you know, management and knowledge and planning to have this intercrop compared to a monocrop. But the cash costs of it are really not a huge obstacle. It's more just the knowledge gap. You heard Lana mention a minute ago Dr. Michelle Hubbard, who happens to be our next guest here on today's show. Michelle is a pulse pathologist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, so the Canadian federal government. She's been in this position since 2017, based in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, in the southwest corner of the province. Before pulses, she worked with canola. And first, she's going to share more information on this chickpea flax intercropping and its impact on Askakaida. And then a bit later, we're going to touch on another subject she works on, anthracnose in lentils. But first, the chickpea and flax intercrop. Askakaida blight in chickpea is a foliar disease, obviously, and is a very big issue. And so what we've seen, Olana and another collaborator, Bill May, have done research dating back to 2012 or 2013 and found in, I believe it was 2014, Lana got quite dramatic results where there was very heavy disease pressure, and but it was a lot less when chickpea was intercropped with flax. And then in years where there's either no disease or very, very little, the difference is less. But we've been seeing the last couple of years, so I've been involved in 2018 and 2019, is that when there's enough, when there's more disease and enough disease to measure, then typically there's less disease in the intercrop than in the monocrop. And so we've tried a few different factors, such as how the, like the row arrangement, so should the chickpeas be planted in the same row as the flax, or should the rows alternate? And how much flax does it make a difference? And it's still up in the air in my mind about the row arrangement, whether it makes any difference or not. The flax planting rate, we found that as more flax is added, there's less disease in the chickpea. And sometimes we've found that just adding any amount of flax doesn't matter how much, there's less disease. Um, and so then our thinking about why that might be is there's a few hypotheses. One that we're actively looking into is maybe the, so chickpeas can be kind of a bushy, dense plant. And with foliar diseases, having moisture in the canopy is really great for disease development um, for the reason that if you think of a, a fungal spore, like a propagule of the disease, like a, like a seed, seeds need moisture to germinate. And a fungal spore, if it's sitting on a plant leaf or a stem, if it's totally dry there, it probably won't germinate. But if there's some moisture, that gives it the opportunity it needs to germinate. So the idea is that with flax being a tall, skinny plant in amongst the chickpea, that the canopy could be drier and that that could lead to less of a favorable environment for disease. Then another possibility is that it's a physical barrier. So foliar diseases 
often spread from one host plant to another by wind or in rain droplets or by physical touching of the plants one to the other. So it's possible having the flax there kind of breaks up the the host plants and makes it a little harder for the ascochyta blight, like some other foliar diseases, tends to, it'll start in one place and then it'll kind of spread in patches. So if there's a flax barrier, it might be a little harder for that to happen. And then another possibility is it's just kind of diluting the the host plants. So like there's there's non-host plants mixed in and that dilutes the host. Or another possibility that we're really not yet looking into, but is possible, is that having a more diversity of plants somehow triggers the def- a defense mechanism in the um, in the chick fleas. In addition to the work being done on the Southeast Research Farm with Lana, Michelle also performed a commercial survey of growers with both monocropped and intercropped chickpeas. So surveying disease in chickpea in both monocrop fields of chickpea and intercrop fields. And so I didn't get a huge sample size and I wouldn't necessarily get a intercrop field and a monocrop field that are right next to one another. So it's, I'm saying that to kind of qualify the results, but there was less disease in the commercial intercrop fields than the commercial monocrop fields. And then this year I'm working to do that again and as when possible find intercropping producers who have a check strip or a neighboring field that has that's monocropped so we can get a little bit better comparison. And I also found last year that intercropping fields tended to use fewer fungicide applications. That's important if that happens again with a larger sample size and if that really tends to be the case because applying fungicides, especially for ascochyta flight of chickpea where people tend to apply fungicides multiple times in a season gets expensive. And so if it's a way for growers to reduce their input costs and make chickpea a little less risky to grow, that would be awesome. For intercropping in general with with chickpea flax, another benefit could be that the flax speeds up the maturity of chickpea and makes it possible to grow it over a larger area, areas that might otherwise be too wet. So that's it's not that's not disease per se, but it's an added an added benefit. Certainly some fascinating research going on there with intercropping and its effect on disease. While I had Michelle on the show, I wanted to ask her about some other work she's doing on fungicide resistance. This work happens to relate to a disease you heard about on our last episode, anthracnose in lentils. So anthracnose is in Saskatchewan, I'm not sure about in the U.S., but in Saskatchewan, it's the most important disease of lentil. And the last couple of years, it's been in about 70-some percent and 90-some percent of the fields that the Saskatchewan government surveyed. So it's a fairly important disease. And one of the ways that it's managed is through fungicide and often with a group 11 or strobilurin fungicide. Um, But then in 2018, I think it was, a company discovered that one of their clients was having problems with not getting the control he expected for a group 11 fungicide. So they did some of their own internal research in just that one field, if I remember right, in 2018. And then in 2019, they 
looked at more fields and found group 11 resistance. So now I'm getting involved because there's a need to have more independent, I guess, or non-company research on to see like how widespread of an issue is this really and just learn more about how big of a problem this is and then to put together some resources for targeted at the moment for Saskatchewan growers about this issue and about how to manage it. Well, the obvious question here is how do farmers manage resistance in this disease? But before we get there, I was curious how scientists like Michelle get a handle on how much resistance is out there in the first place. Well, the Ministry of Agriculture in Saskatchewan is doing a survey anyways that they would be doing in any case to look at all disease, all foliar diseases in lentil. So then what I'm looking at doing is having them, in addition to just looking for disease, collect any samples if they do find what looks to them like it's likely anthracnose, collect tissue, and then ship it to my lab. And then the idea is to then work on a molecular test that this private company has developed to look at the genetic mutation that would confer resistance to group 11 fungicides and then to then to see how widespread it is in the future if time and money allow like if i'm successful getting funding to do this to look at resistance to other fungicides like to group 3 and group 7 fungicides that are a little harder to test for because there's not a clear cut genetic test and they're a little bit lower risk of resistance developing okay now back to the question i wanted to ask earlier which is what options do farmers have if they are encountering this fungicide-resistant anthracnose in lentils? That's an excellent question. And when we put together a few sheets to try to look at, so that I guess some of the options would be try to use other non-fungicide control methods to reduce your risk. But those are kind of limited for one thing, because in, in the case of anthracnose in Saskatchewan, there's two races of the disease, but any genetic resistance. So I would say one of the first things you do is genetic resistance, but that's kind of limited because the genetic resistance that we have is targeted to the race. It isn't a big problem. So there really isn't a lot of resistance. Then a, an obvious thing that you can do and definitely should do is crop rotation. So wait three or four years or more before growing lentil in an area. And then other options would be try to use a fungicide that has, instead of just the group 11, where we know we have a problem, use a fungicide that either has another active ingredient, like a group three or a group seven, or only has a group three or a group seven. But the options are limited there too, like the majority of registered fungicides have a group 11. And then the problem with that is if there's another, say it's a group three and a group 11, sometimes we don't really know how much of the control is coming from the group three. So we don't, don't necessarily know how effective it will be if all the pathogen present is resistant to aerostrobolone. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And thank you very much to Dr. Michelle Hubbard and, of course, also to Lana Shaw. Really appreciate you both being part of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. We have a lot more great information coming your way throughout the 2020 growing season. Please subscribe, and if you don't mind, tell a friend who also may be interested in pulses. You can find all of the episodes at www.growingpulsecrops.com and, of course, on any podcast player. 
This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we look forward to bringing you your next episode very soon.